welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. episode 160 with the real talk therapist Tasha Bailey. Tasha is an author, an award-winning content creator and an accredited psychotherapist who specializes in trauma, self-love and creativity. And in this episode I chat to Tasha about why she decided to become a therapist and some of the different ways that she supports the people that she works with. We talk about how the language of therapy is becoming more commonplace and how it's very easy to learn the words without necessarily doing the work and how it's easy to sound like you have a certain level of self-awareness while demonstrating that you're not very self-aware at all. We talk about learning to talk about feelings and emotions and how challenging it can be to learn about yourself and why it's so important to build trust with your therapist. We also have a lovely chat about the E4 show, Maths, which if you've heard the podcast before, you'll know I'm a big fan of. It's part of my self-care package. I don't have a great relationship with sleep, and I find it wonderful switch off telly when I'm up and roaming the house in the middle of the night. And I knew Tasha was a big fan of the show, so it was great to have a bit of a natter with her about all things maths. But we talk about what we can learn from watching the show, from the experts and from the contestants, and why these sorts of shows are, are so popular and what's good about them. And it was just a real pleasure to chat to Tasha about her work. The sort of therapy accounts on social media can be pretty wild, you know, the the social media space when it comes to therapy really is the wild west. It's not regulated at all. Anyone can put anything and it can be very hard to know who to trust. It can be very hard to find accounts that offer value and are actually talking sense. But Tasha, as the real talk therapist, she really cuts through all of that and her content is brilliant. So it was great to spend some time with her and just to kind of dig into all of that a little bit and find out where she's coming from. And Tasha's book, which is called Real Talk, Lessons from Therapy on Healing and Self-Love, is out now and that's available everywhere. You can get it wherever you get your books from. And all the links to Tasha's socials and website and all that stuff, everything you need to know, it's all in the episode notes. And if you're the sort of person who likes to watch podcasts as well as listen to them, well, you can watch this one by signing up to the Patreon community. That's where all the videos from the conversations that I have go. They all go up on Patreon. They don't go anywhere else. And there's loads up there. There's loads of stuff that's not out yet. And I try and offer as much behind the scenes content as I can. It's £5 a month and that just goes towards keeping the show going. It just covers the costs, that's it. Keeps the show independent, stops me having to do daft adverts and just keeps everything ticking over. There's a link to that in the episode notes as well. Another way you can support the show is just to leave a review. Wherever you're listening to this, Spotify, iTunes, wherever, five-star review and some kind words would be very much appreciated. And this is episode 160 of The Proper Mental Podcast with the Real Talk Therapist, Tasha Bailey. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is the Real Talk Therapist, Tasha Bailey. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Tasha. Yeah. Yeah. I'm having a, a good, a good day so far. Yeah. Have you been up to much this morning? Where are we at? 
I've had a nice uh, bit of a slow morning. Like Fridays and Mondays, I tend to have like a slower day to start my week and then my week. Um, so I've had a bit of a slow um, morning of like waking up a little bit later and then like checking emails and not committing to too much. Um, so yeah, I've had a good day so far. Oh, that's good. That's so like, that's such a good philosophy, right? It's so important to like calm out, carve out these these slower starts. Because if you don't make a conscious effort, you ain't getting that time, right? It's just, that's how life works, isn't it? Absolutely. And I'm the kind of person usually that on a Friday, I try to cram everything that I haven't done. And it just leaves you so stressed out. And then for the weekend, you can't then really have a weekend because you're thinking of the things that you had to like, you know, bash out in the last kind of minute. So I'm trying to soft launch my weekend. Um, which yeah, it's been go- going well so far. Yeah, I like that soft launch the weekend. That's a yeah. <laughs> that's a great way of saying it, mate. Yeah. Um, I thought like a great place to start would be with your book, Tasha, because it's been out a couple of months now. Um, how does that feel to have that out in the world and doing the rounds and finally in people's hands? What's that like? Honestly, it's so vulnerable. It's the most vulnerable thing I've probably um most vulnerable thing I've ever put myself through. Um, I guess it just it feels like I was saying this to a friend yesterday. It feels like, you know, when you're in school or uni and you've done like a an assignment or a dissertation and you've given it into the examiners or whoever's going to mark it. And then you're waiting for the mark, like you're waiting to hear like the feedback. And you're just like, oh, my God, did I pass? Is it OK? Is it all right? <laughs> and it's it's that but times a thousand because it's like out in the world. And obviously it's not an examiner that's out there, but it's people actually reading it and seeing how much they relate to the book or not. And yeah, it's just a very vulnerable thing. It's also something you don't really get. Um, yeah, you don't get to be told if it's right or wrong. Like it's so having to sit with that of like, OK, stop being the good student that wants good marks and just like, be be happy with the fact that you've written a, a, a gift for people that they can use for their lives. Um, so it's a really, really strange and vulnerable um, experience for me. Yeah, it must be really, I suppose, like you put all that time into it and then it's out there. And like when, when you, um, you know, hand something in to get that result, well, you either get the result or you don't. And then it's like, well, what do we do next? With a book, it's just kind of like floating around in the ether, eh? So we don't have that definitive point, I suppose. But yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, how did you, I'm always interested when people choose to write a book. And obviously as a psychotherapist, there are quite literally hundreds of aspects of psychotherapy and of the mind and of people that you could have chosen to write about. Why did you specifically choose um self-healing and um yeah and self-love um so for me I've so I've always I always wanted to be a psychotherapist from a really young age and obviously did my training and started to work in the field and realized that sorry there's a cat coming into the picture more more than welcome (laughs) but I I soon realized that a lot of people can't afford psychotherapy or therapy or counseling um, or if they, they do try to access it, it's often through NHS or through um, charity services, which is very, very limited and you have to have a certain criteria. And there's just so many people that I feel like could benefit from therapy that maybe can't afford it, can't get to it, or maybe are too scared to even start that path. And so I wanted to create something that will kind of create a bit of a bridge. Um, so something where it would introduce people to the ideas that you learn in therapy so that you can start to think about that for yourself and then pack it for yourself in a really safe and gentle way. And I wanted to, to I wanted therapy to feel less scary as well. Um, 
I'm not the kind of therapist that's going to use really big words or be really clinical or um, be a bit of a blank slate. It's just not my style. It's just not my thing. I'm going to be me and I'm going to encourage you to be you. And that's kind of what I want the book to be is that I, you know, how to be your most authentic self. And I'm going to be my most authentic self as I'm telling you about it. Um, so I really want that kind of realness, that real talkness in a book. Um, yeah, that's kind of how it all kind of became. Yeah, it's the, the whole authenticity thing is fascinating to me. There are themes that come up in this podcast like time and time again. And I can be talking to different people about different things. And this this whole idea of authenticity and either losing sight of of who we are or not knowing how to fully step into it or that's it really has a negative effect, doesn't it, on our on not being able to work out like who we are and, and what we want and, and what we could be doing. You know, it's, it's a big deal for humans, isn't it? It's huge. And it's so interesting because maybe a couple of weeks ago, I did a reel on Instagram and this reel is currently on 8 million views. And it was literally talking about, um, talking about that, but in the sense of like uh, so many of us maybe grew up having to be the good child, um, you know, the child that either in our families, we had to kind of fulfill all the expectations or just in society, we had to fulfill all expectations of what it means to be good or good human or whatever it is. And I, I think a lot of the time then when we do that, when we're trying to, you know, um, be really successful or be really nice and polite and to always put other people's needs before ourselves, what we end up doing is we end up cutting off, cutting off our most authentic bits and we then start to lose sight of what we want for our lives and what we want for ourselves. And it then leads to things like people pleasing and burnout and all this stuff. And so there's, there's so many people have related to this post because so many of us have been told that we need to be a certain way, but to actually also, and whilst also ignoring the bits of us that are actually real and authentic and the most genuine parts of ourselves. Yeah. And that's quite the job, isn't it? Like when, if we've been, you know, pretending or I don't even like the word pretending that doesn't quite that doesn't quite land you know um it's all a strategy right so well people please it's all it's all a strategy it's all trying to you're trying to keep yourself safe essentially aren't you and if we've been doing that for a long time the idea of like picking that there's that whole thing one it's scary and two it's like well where do I start even if I feel brave enough to do it there's a it's it's a yeah there's a lot going on isn't there when we start to try and learn who we are and how to be authentic yeah, because a lot of it's about survival. Like you said, it's like strategy where we, somewhere down the line, we learned that the best way to survive is to be what other people need me to be um, because I'll have less rejection, less less disappointment from other people. I'll maybe feel more loved because I'm fulfilling you know, this person's needs of me and they're more likely to love me or more likely to give me what I need. But then later down the line, we realise actually I don't feel like me sometimes I feel right feels a bit off I feel like I'm not fulfilling my own purpose I feel um you know I have so many clients that will come to me when they feel like you know I've got a great job I've got this I've got this but actually none of them feel like they're what I actually want in life something's missing and what is missing is them (laughs) you know themselves and the, the part where they kind of follow their own passions and wants and needs um so yeah it's definitely a survival technique but then at some point we have to realize that well hope hopefully we have to build a life where we no longer have to survive but we can just actually thrive and live and enjoy the life that we we can create for ourselves yeah that's quite a big 
realization to come to, isn't it? Particularly if you've worked like really hard to create in this life for yourself and then to kind of look around and like, it's almost easier to, to double down on what you've got and just almost ignore this, this little tap on the shoulder that's saying something ain't, something's not, not right. You know, when we, we can, we're so resilient as humans, aren't we? We can ignore that little voice for so long. And then mm-hmm. t- for um, maybe some people f- forever, I don't know it. I, when I think about my own experience, it's like I could ignore it for so long until I couldn't. And I almost didn't have any choice left, but to start addressing some of this stuff, but it's not, I don't know. I sometimes think that it's easy to, it's easy to throw it around, isn't it? And say like, just uncover your authentic self. And we all go, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> but it's like, it's a lot of work, isn't it? It's hard going. It's a, it's yeah. A hard going. Cause I feel like there's a point where you realize it and then you can't ever unrealize it. Like you can't ever not see it again, but then you then have to address the hard work that it takes to change it. And the hard work is hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And a part of you would be like, I just want to go back to the place where I could just be oblivious <laughs> to this. Um, but no, it is so such hard work and it's it's lifelong work, actually. I think I don't think there is a quick fix. It's not going to be a okay in the next year. In 2024, I'm going to change everything. I don't think it's going to be that. I think it's like bit by bit, I need to embrace this new part of me or this part of me that I haven't given time to and spend the rest of my life given time to that part of me as well yeah I suppose as you like as you grow as well you'd like you find out that you want different things and then you have to work towards them and like you say it's a constant constant process and I I ended up in therapy um I ended up in crisis basically um so that's why I started therapy and I, I still go now I've been going to therapy for I don't know five or six years and like now it's much more it's about exploring it's about trying to like thrive rather than survive and unpick that stuff and it's still hard work and it's still not always nice um but I think maybe, maybe it might it might be because there's less riding on it I suppose but um it, it can become the work can become fun too can't it it can become a, like learning about yourself is like that's quite a cool cool space to be in I think yeah it's it's kind of your yeah it's about it's kind of about play isn't it it's like this kind of childlike part of ourselves we're like oh there's a new part about myself that I didn't know about let me see about that let me play with that let me experiment with it what is that where how far does that go it's kind of I think Usually this happens in our adolescence when we are kind of separate, not separating, but we suddenly feel too grown up for our families and we're kind of, we kind of focus more on our friendships and community and stuff. And usually around that age when we're like 13 to like 19, we start to listen to different music and try out different clothes and do different hobbies. And it's just a part of our, you know, identity development. Some of us don't get a chance to do that, but hopefully a lot of us do and then I love that we can then do it again in adulthood through therapy and things like that where we're we're sussing out all the different parts of us that we didn't get the chance to really explore before it's like really playful and fun and also dark and difficult as well like there's there's both both sides of it but there is this kind of yeah fun element to it yeah yeah definitely I've been kind of like over the last year or so going back to um moments where maybe sometimes you can pinpoint a moment where you like you chose something right so I don't know maybe I'm like I really really wanted this jacket and then I saved up my money and I bought this jacket and then I got the jacket and then I didn't have the courage to wear it in case anyone said something funny about it and it just stayed in my wardrobe I've been thinking about these little moments and like going back and like 
finding that jacket now, you know, like the the one I didn't, I wasn't brave enough to wear when I was 14. And like now I'm, I'm like 42 and I'm, I'm going to wear that jacket now, man. And I'm going to like enjoy wearing it. And uh, yeah, that's been like, that's been a lot of fun, you know, thinking of those moments and, um, and trying to, yeah, trying to like, yeah, have the courage now and get the benefit of it now. Yeah. But like you say, it's a, it can be a playful thing as well, can it? I love that. It's like almost reclaiming the parts of you that felt embarrassed or fearful of like judgment and and uh, rejection like in my book I say something about cringe and I one of the things that I believe is that when we cringe at something is usually because a part of us really wants that thing so when we when we see a couple PDA in the street and we're like oh that's gross like oh, how embarrassing there might be a part of us that actually wants that intimacy or wants that kind of touch or I do believe that there's a kind of shadow part of ourselves that wants it, but then our ego says, we don't want that. We've never had it. So let's just like rubbish it and, you know, put some, put some like discrimination on it. Like let's just kind of judge it. Um, And I just, I just, yeah, I love that whenever we cringe at something, it's important to kind of think, okay, what's the need underneath that, that we need to look at. Yeah. That sort of curiosity about our about ourselves why do I feel that way why am I triggered or annoyed or upset yeah it gets um gets interesting then it gets really really interesting what was your route into all all this mate how was you um was that something you wanted to do from a from a young age become a therapist yeah it's really it's really weird I was a weird kid <laughs> because a lot of people when they become psychotherapists it's often that they had a different career first maybe that they were a yoga teacher or a teacher or social worker and then eventually they kind of find themselves in psychotherapy and wanting to do that kind of work whereas little me age 15 was like yep yeah, I want to be a psychotherapist and it came from this um this Nickelodeon film called Harriet the Spy okay. um, <laughs> where um Harriet is this kid who she goes through a bit of a loss um of her in-house nanny and so her parents sent her to see a child psychotherapist and it's this dude with like loads of toys in his room and he kind of influences her to talk about her feelings or to write about her feelings and as a kid I was like that was like a really cool job I'll be around toys all day and I get to talk to kids all the time and like talk about feelings like that'd be great and so that's how the the dream of being a psychotherapist started and so I trained to be a child psychotherapist specifically and really loved it, but then realized that a lot of adults have that inner child um, who has a, to- a story to tell. And so I've now worked mostly with adults and telling their stories. Um, so that's kind of how it came about. Yeah, that's wonderful. Nickelodeon, eh? Who would have? <laughs> just goes to thought like you just really don't know what's going to have an impact on us and at what time and and stuff like that that's um that's wonderful I suppose a, a question that was kind of coming through for me then is how will you define I always like to ask therapists a version of this question but how how do you define like psychotherapy because I think people when it comes to therapy we get a little bit confused of the over the words you know what's a therapist what's a counselor anything with the word psycho in it tends to scare people off right because of all the media connotations so what's your own take on on what a, a psychotherapist is and your role as a psychotherapist so i would say psycho a psychotherapist in the most like simple non-scary terms is someone that provides a therapeutic space for you to really make sense of your story, the stories that you're carrying, and to help to kind of heal some of the wounds that might be getting in the way of your present life and of your future. 
um, this person also helps you take to take accountability so that you can make the changes that you need to change. But also they hold a mirror up so that you can walk to, you can walk closer towards being your true self. That's kind of how I would describe it. Um, they're not the expert. They're not the expert of your life. Yes, they've got lots of qualifications and experience, but the only true storyteller of your life is yourself. And your therapist is a person that kind of helps to deepen your understanding of, of the story. They will mm-hmm. ask certain questions that will get you to certain places that you never thought of before. Um, and when you have, when you kind of go to those places, you build awareness, which allows you to kind of be more, yeah, more aware of yourself, learn more about yourself, learn, learn more about the emotions that you might be holding that you haven't been able to process. Um yeah, that's kind of how I would explain um, psychotherapy. Yeah, that's really beautifully put, mate. Yeah, that's certainly what, yeah, what I would like to have happen from my experience of therapy and have had happen. Yeah, that's lovely. Do you find that when people come to you, there's a lot of um, misconceptions around, you know, what what you do or what your role is going to be in the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, a lot of people will be expecting either advice, like specific advice, like what should I do about my partner who is doing this, this and this? Um, or sometimes people have the expectation that they're going to be fixed, um, that they're broken or that there's something about them that they need to fix. If it's anxiety, for example, I want to fix my anxiety. And I, I always just say that there's nothing to fix. You're not broken. You're not someone that needs to be fixed. You're just someone that needs to be understood. Um, it's not about fixing you or making you be something different to what you need. Like actually you are your full package already. You just need to learn about it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the two big misconceptions that people come up to or that they think things will be fixed within three sessions. And it's just like, <laughs> First, we're not doing fixing, but three sessions doesn't really give you much time to get to trust me. And that's a big part of the work. Um, so, yeah, I think there's that's another one time, how much time they give themselves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I suppose that's the modern humans uh, problem, isn't it? We want it. We want like Amazon Prime version of therapy, right? <laughs> we want it <laughs> we want it straight away. But exactly. it, 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 um, trust is an interesting word, isn't it? Because that relationship with a therapist is so, so important. How do you find things like um, things like gender, things like race and, you know, these things that really um, it, it's just such an individual experience being a human, isn't it? And how do you find the things like that, like factor into building relationships with with um, with clients? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because I find that a lot of the clients that find me uh aren't necessarily the same intersection of me but they intersection as me but they tend to be from some kind of marginalized background whether it's that they're uh, a queer person or whether it's that they're non-binary or whether it's that they are um, black or brown or that there's tends to be some kind of intersection that is often marginalized and I think they find me because me as a, a black female woman and millennial woman there's a kind of understanding of like I've had my own intersectional experience and maybe there's something that they feel like I would either understand or help poke certain questions more than other therapists will. Um, I think in terms of feeling comfortable, it can help to have a therapist that 
that looks like you or has a similar experience as you but I don't think it's, it's essential I think what's more essential is having a therapist who is willing to go there um so just for context like when I was trained to be a therapist I had to have five years of therapy every week and I had a uh white middle class I think she's middle class woman um so not not someone that looks like me at all and my my kind of criteria was I want a therapist with kind eyes that's all I wanted I want a therapist with kind eyes because that will make me feel safe um and she was always willing to poke the question of what is that experience like for you as a black woman specifically and what is it like for you that I'm a white woman and you're a black woman and sometimes I'd shy away from it like what are you talking about I don't I don't want to go there but eventually I was able to feel safe enough because she kept inviting me to but I know there are there are therapists that aren't willing to go there and I think I think it's about you know finding out who is willing to go there whether they look like you or not or whether they have experience like you or not just kind of seeing are are they able to go to the places that I need to to go to yeah that's um that's fascinating you know rather than pretend that these things don't exist right like the the unspoken thing in the in the world is like we don't look like each other right and uh, yeah as someone who's willing to go there that's really interesting i found that i've like i'm much more comfortable in feminine energy right so mm-hmm. i find i i've done a, a few years with a male therapist and a few years with a female therapist and i just find generally there's something in me even recording this podcast after with like female guests i'm much more easy i'm much more comfortable i, I think i'm quite a i suppose a um, I'm very in touch with that side of me, you know, so that, that works for me. And that's kind of, yeah. And it is, someone once said to me that finding a therapist is a bit like dating, right? You just got to mm-hmm. keep, keep trying and eventually you find your, <laughs> find your, find your fit, but that trust is key, isn't it? To the therapeutic relationship. It's so key. And it can, it can actually take a while as well. So it's quite a frustrating process because just like dating, if you're dating the set, if you're dating someone for a while and then they turn out not to be the right person for you, it's so frustrating to have to start again. Um, But when you do find that person who feels safe enough and good enough, and I can grow with this person, it is, you know, it's, it feels so safe. It feels so comforting to be able to have that part of your journey, but yeah, it's, it's a whole process yeah. <laughs> it's a real process yeah do you ever like um, have someone in and like because it, it, they're making the decision right do I do I click with this therapist and uh, like we'd never really think about it from the therapist perspective right do you ever sit there with someone and think yeah this ain't gonna work or you know like do you get that vibe from them like they might get from you sort of thing yeah I swear I haven't had it for a while which is interesting um but yeah like I have had it where I'm just like oh I don't think I'm the right therapist for you for you um or I'm curious about why they chose me as their therapist and um sometimes I don't know if the reason is right so it's, so there's there's been times when I've been like okay like it's been great that we've had a first session but I also want you to try and meet a few more people and then come back to me and say see how you feel um sometimes as well is that I think in the first session or the assessment whatever you want to call it obviously it's quite a nerve wracking thing. I think it's probably nerve wracking for the therapist as well, but for a new client, it's like, Oh, like I have to suddenly tell my story within an hour just so the therapist has an idea of, of what I'm bringing. And it's really nerve wracking and you can't really fully be your yourself. You're still kind of seeing if you can trust this person. So it's, it can be quite hard as a therapist to kind of, you know, try to predict or 
go off by my first impressions because it could change in like a couple of sessions. Um, so yeah, it is, it's, it's a very strange process. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I always think there's like some jobs and you can do all the training in the world and it must be the strangest thing. The first time you're qualified and you're on your own and someone comes in, you know, the first time in like private practice or, or whatever, it, it must be such a strange thing. I always think that about hairdressers, like if you do all the training yeah. in the world, the first time you've got to cut someone's hair and like, you really don't want to make a mistake with someone's hair, but yeah. like, you know, therapy is a, a different type of mistake, but it must be a very strange thing. The first time that the, the stabilizers are off and you, you're off on your own. It definitely is. And like, like I said, like my my training was um, initially with children and young people. So actually my first clients, like my first, I don't know how many clients, like a hundred clients or something, but I don't know, my first 400 hours was with children and young people who didn't have a choice about whether I would be their therapist or not. They didn't get to choose who their therapist was. So I definitely felt it then <laughs> when they were like, I do not like you. I do not want to have therapy with you or who the hell are you? What the hell is this therapy thing? You know, you really feel it then. And obviously they do have a choice of to stay into it or not, but um, there is always that initial, what the hell is this <laughs> feeling from kids? Because they don't have that understanding of what therapy is fully until they're really in it. Um, so that definitely was a big, uh, a big learning for me, um, yeah. having those experiences. Did you, um, was it a conscious decision to step more into the, um, like the social media space? Um, or was that, did your profile just kind of like grow over time or was it now this is somewhere I want to have an impact? How did that come about? It's a bit of both. So, um, at the time I was working with, um, young people in, um, in a borough that's quite, quite very kind of diverse, um, lots of kind of working class families. And I loved the work so much, um, but it was limited sessions. It was like, I think 25 sessions. And it also had the most massive waiting list of like a year or two years or something like that. And I just felt like, this is so frustrating. Like I, I want to literally be able to see all these people. I can't, I'm one person. Um, and I want all of these young people to have access to therapy and they're having to wait a year or two years with no resources. Like what the hell is that about? And so I was like, do you know what? Therapy obviously isn't free, but what is free is social media. Like, and most young people and adults have social media of some kind. So I was like, let me just try out, like sharing some bits, you know, on social media and my goal was to have like a hundred followers. I was like, if I can like give that to a hundred people, that's amazing. Like that is, that would be incredible. Um, and then it just really grew in such a short time. It, um, it grew to a whole community. Um, and then it also grew from rather than just focusing on, at first I was focused on therapy, things that you learn in therapy, what you choose to do if you don't like your therapist all of this stuff and then it went into more like self-love healing um mental health stuff um so it really grew into a lot yeah a lot bigger than what I expected it to to be uh, for sure like I wasn't planning to show my face at all and obviously <laughs> now I'm all over the thing so <laughs> um yeah it definitely changed a lot <laughs> yeah that's really cool huh? that sort of organic um that organic growth you know that's um that's a really lovely thing I've, I've always curious to talk about the the online space because there are um there are a lot of 
therapy accounts. And there's a lot of very good ones. There's a lot of ones, you know, um, very much include yourself in this, Tasha. It's why we're here today, right? That I get so much from, so much value from. Um, But also it is like the Wild West out there, right? And I think the more the, where do I want to take this? I suppose language is really interesting to me. And I think through social media, we've all learned a lot of therapeutic language. But because of that, we use a lot of therapeutic language without necessarily knowing quite what it means or using the words that we use without doing the work. Because if you know a lot of words, you can look like you've done a lot of work, right? And that's not always the case. But uh, it's pretty crazy out there, isn't it, with those sorts of things? Do you see that? Do you see a lot of it when you're online? You see things and think like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's appropriate. Yeah, there's a lot of like buzzwords (laughs) that get overused a lot, like gaslighting and the word toxic was going around for a long time over around COVID times like there's just a lot of those words where it's just like okay let's not group everything as gaslighting and everything as like where's the nuances in this so I do think yeah as much as there are some so many great accounts out there I think as human beings we love to put ourselves in boxes or to put things in boxes so it's very tempting for all of us to make use of these words and to almost yeah, put them in every context. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's where yeah, it's a bit dodgy sometimes when we do that. <laughs> yeah. I, funny, I've got a few of those words like scribbled down on my pad, you know, to talk about a gaslighting is one of them. That's something yeah. that's very much um very much become become quite quite popular. But yeah, we kind of throw the words around milly nilly. And um, like I say, you can appear someone can appear as if they're very, very self-aware because they're using all these words, but they're also demonstrating not a great deal of self-awareness in the way that they, uh, they use them. But but the the other one I was was curious to mention to you was um, almost like Mm self-diagnosis. And there's there's a place for that. And I'm like a really big believer in people having a massive say in their own process and in their own, you know, whatever's going on. But there's a, there's a real thing now. It's like, you can, you know, I can spend five minutes on TikTok and come back with like three different, diagnosis based on some pretty normal human behavior you know like those five signs you've got high functioning depression and they like list five things that everybody does every day and that's um that can be that can be tricky as well can it it can be really hard because yeah like, like I said a lot of us will yeah we'll, we'll see ourselves in those things quite easily and then suddenly put a label in it and rather than seeing that that is it's actually a nuance you know for example depression Yes, there is kind of clinical depression, but there's also like other parts of the spectrum of like feeling depressed or feeling low or or currently we're in winter. So a lot of us are feeling low because we don't have vitamin D access and stuff like that. So it's like, it doesn't give much space for the nuances and for the scales of where we might be on that. Um, yeah, it's it could be quite frustrating because <laughs> again, like I sometimes have clients being like, yeah, so I saw this on TikTok and I... I figured out that I'm basically this, this, and this. It's like, okay, let's unpack that for a second. Where did that come from? Let's, let's talk about that. Um, so yeah, it's yeah, it's very, it's very tempting uh to do that. Yeah, it's very um very easily, very easily done, isn't it? Like you say, we see ourselves in these things. And it's nice to have answers. I think sometimes with like mental health, no matter what we're experiencing, a lot of it is the un in the unknown. It was very much my case, was you know, I don't I don't know what is what is happening i was looking everywhere for answers and this is back a bit there wasn't the amount of online resource and if there was i certainly didn't know about it right because you only know what you know and a lot of this stuff you only find 
after the fact. So I can see why people find it, well, why people find it. But yeah, it's um, yeah. it's tricky. Yeah, I think sometimes as well, it can be a bit of a um, defense defense mechanism um, of intellectualizing, especially like with the buzzwords like. Um, what you mentioned, like either self-diagnosing or self-diagnosing someone else as narcissistic or something like that. It can be a way of us almost intellectualizing our experience so, that, so, that, so we don't have to feel our experience. We don't have to be with the, the more um, messy bits, the bits where we don't have answers, the bits where we're confused or vulnerable. Like we, I can say, for example, my partner's being narcissistic rather than me looking at what did I do and what am I accountable for that might have caused the behavior that he's showing and also what is he accountable for like what's the messy bit that I'm not addressing um so I think it can be a bit of a defense as well from our part yeah it's very useful isn't it it can kind of like get us off the hook I know it certainly it is one point before I hadn't done any sort of work on myself but I probably read every book in the Amazon top 20 self-help books and I could quote this stuff and I could tell people this stuff and I could very much talk the talk but I was doing zero walking the walk behind the scenes and it can be a an avoidance thing can't it it's been well if everyone thinks that I know all this stuff then I I never actually have to do any work with all of this stuff I can always hide behind the knowledge right yeah, a really good analogy of that is like, you know, doing your driving tests and stuff. Obviously, you can learn all the theory, but it doesn't mean that you're able to be behind a wheel and drive safely and calmly. And, you know, the theory is only going to get you so far in terms of being a good driver. And I think that's kind of how it is. We can read all the books and we can read all the TikToks and the Instagram carousels in the world. But actually, if we're not applying it and actually delving deep into our own understanding of ourselves then there's only so far we're gonna go yeah definitely do you have any um ideas around starting that process if people are listening and I, I suppose I'm asking with something specific in mind really it's about to be international men's day right and there's a lot of extra um talk about men's mental health and particularly encouraging men to talk and something that I think I've learned from talking to some amazing men on this podcast is that men don't really have a too much of a problem talking if the environment's right. A, a, more of a bigger problem is, um, is lacking the vocabulary. So like, how do you reach out for help? How do you t- tell someone how you're feeling? If you don't really know what you're feeling, I'm guessing as a therapist in the early part of the relationship, you quite often ask someone and they just say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Right. And I was just wondering if you had any, any ideas around starting to gain that vocabulary how to start to explore ourselves a little bit because i think if we can if we can get enough words to ask for help then that's the ball rolling and the rest will sort itself out through the process it's getting that that initial stepping into it that's the hard bit for men in particular i think yeah i that's a really great question i think so actually the first chapter of my book is called feeling and healing it's all about that it's all about actually how do we grow the vocabulary that we have about our feelings and how do we actually even realize what we're feeling is what we're feeling like how do I know this feeling in my stomach is anger or anxiety or anxiety or this or this and one thing that I always recommend is um googling the feelings wheel um which is just basically a, a wheel with three layers and it's got loads of feeling words so for example you'll have like happy and then happy will extend to another eight words that are also about happiness but they're different types of happiness like joy or awe or whatever and then that was expand to another layer of more words so when someone is asking you how you're feeling and you say actually I don't know 
you can say actually let me just like check for a second and look at the will or go into a practice of actually using it yourself in the mornings how am I feeling today let me check on the will I've had a client before who saves that um the picture of the feelings will on their phone as their screensaver so it's always available to them and then if that's a bit um another fun another fun one I used to have in schools is that there's a like feelings chart it's basically got all these emojis with the feeling word underneath and I used to have it on the back of my door of the office and every time someone left my office whether they were an adult a teacher a child they will be like hmm I think that's that's me today <laughs> and it's it's so it's so hard to not look at it and to not <laughs> use it as a reference for yourself so using those kind of tools um so feelings chart emotions will and there's one called um I think they're called the blob men and they're really cool as well so using those tools will really help you to kind of yeah kind of relate what you're feeling in that moment um another way to do it is um finding a song that tells you what you're feeling helps you with what you're feeling like um we probably mostly do this intuitively but you know the first song you probably listen to is a song that relates to what you're feeling or what you need in that moment so just using that as well as a center chat can be quite helpful yeah that's wonderful the whole day of of using music because like you said it's often like a reflection isn't it like with this you know we're not picking things completely by accident when we need to need to hear them yeah that's uh yeah that's really cool it's kind of like i suppose i see it as a um almost like a learned skill so something i actually pinched it this idea off is someone i spoke to about three or four weeks ago and i we started a conversation and i asked this guest it was um mark richardson from sky canancy and i said to him how are you doing mark and he answered and then he went back on it and he said now hang on a minute i'm gonna think about that answer and he just kind of like checked in with himself and like gave me a bit more context and i thought you know what what a useful way when someone asks how are you doing to like really think about your answer rather than just a yeah yeah I'm good but it only has to be a second right you don't have to give them your entire life but I've been really trying when someone says how's things to kind of like just go in a little bit and practice because I think quite a lot of time we forget that the more we practice something the better we'll get at it and we wouldn't expect to I don't know be able to like ride a bike first time without a bit of practice but then as soon as someone says talk about your feelings you try once and then go well I couldn't do it it's rubbish it's pointless and not bothering you know that, that I can't I did that for a long long time but it, it is a learned skill isn't it to be able to express ourselves this way absolutely and I think another part of that is also ref- like thinking about what questions you use to other people as well um so how do I how do I say what is it yeah I guess like being really intentional with how you ask people how they are you know if you if, if I usually say how are you really doing like how are you really really doing today or what do you need for me today or what yeah what are you in the mood for today like just being really intentional about those questions and allowing yourself to, to delve deeper when somebody says how they are because then they're also going to hopefully do that for you as well and then you'll facilitate the conversation which is for both of you more emotionally available and emotionally emotionally in tune um so yeah I think that's something about yeah giving yourself that moment to answer the question but also being aware of what questions you're asking that can also help with the conversation as well yeah I suppose it makes people know that you're up for hearing the answer because sometimes someone says how are you doing and you think you don't care I'm just going to say good right and it's uh and I think that again the whole this thing around men's mental health I think a lot of it is not knowing 
how you're going to be received, right? That stops spe- people speaking out. It's like, well, I've got this thing to say, and I think I've worked. I think I've worked out the words, and now I just need to say it to someone. And you sometimes get a vibe, but you think, you know what, this is not appropriate. And I, I think men lack more spaces where it is appropriate. You know, you're watching a Champions League final with your mates, and it's half time. It's probably not going to be the most appropriate time to say, well, I've got this on my mind. You can see why people feel that they can't, but. Um, yeah, knowing how we're going to be received is a big stumbling block to people asking for help, I think, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's that question that you said of like, how safe is this environment for me to actually share what I need to share? And if it's not safe, then what do you need to ask for to help it feel more safe? Um, so, yeah, I think safety is a huge thing in, in being able to be more open, more vulnerable, more uh, more able to talk about your feelings. It has to be that safety ground first yeah yeah very much so yeah i'm gonna um i'm gonna change tack slightly here tasha right i was was gonna try and do a clever segue into it and i thought you know what i want to get into it we've got something um we've got something in common i want to talk to today but i i hope i've got this right i believe you're a a big fan of married at first sight yeah i got that right yeah okay (laughs) i was wondering where this is going (laughs) (laughs) i am yes (laughs) yeah well me too and i wanted to chat a little bit about that today as well because i think that is it's a very, very good example of some of the things we've talked about today with regards to people, um, you know, with like therapeutic language and, um, you know, weaponizing some different concepts from therapy and stuff like that. But also like why we all like that show so much is interesting to me. But why why are you a, a fan? What What is it about maths that you enjoy? Um. First, I'm going to say quickly that I have, I'm not currently up to date with many episodes. I think I've I've missed the last week and a bit because I got sidelined by B- Big Brother. Um, but I I I won't, love... I won't drop any spoilers. I'll, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, maths for so many reasons. Um, I mean, I love reality TV sh- TV shows in general, and I just think with the work that I do as a therapist, which is often about trauma and quite difficult um, difficult themes about life. I do love reality TV shows for two reasons. Firstly, it does delve into things, but in a kind of light way, but also it, it's almost like, it's quite comforting for me because it's, it's about human experience, but it's not the same as being in a therapy session, if that makes sense. There's a, there's a distance that I have from it and that is quite comforting for me. Um, But I specifically really love maths because there are actually experts there. You know, there's a lot of um, love related reality TV shows where there are no experts on screen. There is just couples getting together with no, um, with no kind of boundaries or no kind of grounding or no one kind of giving them counseling or advice. Whereas I love that with maths, the couples are mostly being held accountable for their actions and given tasks to, you know, better their relationships the other reason why I love it is because um, so I'm married now as, as of a couple of months ago and me and my husband love it. So it's like our, our, one of our things that we watch kind of consistently. Um, and again, it's like a great, as a couple, it's great to watch, pause it and then to talk about things because then we are talking about ourselves as a couple whilst also using this other couple as a inspiration or or not always inspiration but you know a talking point for us to think about our own relationship so that's kind of the main things it gives me a bit of relief relief and release and light-hearted watchiness but also gives me a bit of learning as well about relationships for myself yeah there's enough sort of there's enough 
I suppose, realness in it, that it makes it worth watching. It's not like completely throwaway, but also at the same time, it's a bit like junk food in the minute, the minutes it's finished, it's, it's finished, right? You don't, don't take it with you. But I think it does bring out people's own like amateur therapist. Like me and my wife watch it and like someone will say something and, you know, we'll be saying, oh, I wonder if she, like she's, she's done that because of this thing that he said and like analyzing behavior, but it does encourage a certain amount of curiosity which like you say you can use on on yourself right you can you can learn a bit from it a bit from it as well yeah do you yeah, I um... love that I love that that it brings out our inner experts so we all become we all become the experts whilst we're watching yeah. or just sat there in our own complete chaos just judging these people on <laughs> on television and fixing their problems yeah uh do you, do you prefer the um the UK one or the um Australian one? Oh, it's gonna have to be the Australian one for me same um, yeah, yeah. Same. I always think that the, I don't know. Sometimes with the British one, um, there's a, a little bit too much. Um, there's not as much at stake. I think sometimes with the Australian one, they're a little bit older, and you get the impression that people are there are genuinely there because they want to find some. Sometimes on the British one, you kind of think, oh, are you thinking of as much about your influencer career as you are of your, um, you know, it's like um, uh, on this year's one of the guys. I think it's Paul. Is it Paul? Um, he's um he's like twenty four. <laughs> it's like, come on, mate, you can't have run out of options now at, at twenty four. You know, you've still got a lot of um a lot of dates you could go on. All hope is not lost. But yeah, with the Aussie ones, they're a little bit older. It's a little bit more um a bit more more real. But uh, and I I mean I, I also I love the experts for the UK one, but I really love the experts in the Australian one as well. I can't remember what his name is. The expert that used to be a cricket player. Oh, um, is it John, the main... John, yeah, I really like John. I feel like he actually really does hold him accountable. <laughs> you know, you have those episodes where he's kind of like, kind of telling them off. I just I just love those episodes so much. I also feel like sometimes the pairings in the UK one, sometimes they feel more for entertainment purposes rather than for actual, yes, I think they actually will really work well together. Um, but no, I I love the US the the Australian one. I love that you didn't say the US one because <laughs> everyone never, forgets about the US one. I've never watched it. I've never watched it. I've watched the New Zealand one. That's all right. That's all oh, right. I haven't watched that one. Yeah, that's that's okay. But yeah, it's my switch off telly. I have um I have a bit of trouble sleeping sometimes. Normally, if my mental health isn't optimal, uh, the first reason the first way I know before anything else is that my sleep starts going a bit out the window and that's when I'm when I'm up in the middle of the night and can't settle it's my uh which is why I've watched so many of them and why I know so much about it but it interests me to chat to it chat to a therapist about it because of the therapeutic themes within it and that accountability is um like you say like you know when someone says something and like Mel's eyebrows go up you know like oh okay she's gonna go off right this is gonna um but that's important because um you know, we need to be called on our shit sometimes, don't we, essentially, really? Absolutely. And I think what's also really interesting about maths is that you're watching, you're what you're actually kind of watching the whole journey, actually more than the experts are, because they don't really see the bits when the couples are at home and stuff like that. And you're kind of seeing the whole journey of each individual, but also each couple. And there's something very um, satisfying about that. There's something very, like... Um, I guess, yeah, it's about that inner expert in us of like, oh, I can see that this person's really grown into their shell or I can really see that this, these couples are, this two, this couple is getting more intimate and that's really exciting to see. And there's something about um, 
being adjacent to it and that distance of watching somebody else's journey can be really either inspiring or very teaching like it's it's yeah it's kind of brings a lot of our own knowledge I think out and our own Mm. understanding of ourselves out I've definitely watched episodes where I've again maybe cringed or maybe um connected with a certain character because they remind me of younger version of myself I'm like oh yeah I probably would have been just as insecure or just as this or just as that and you know it can be holding a mirror to our past selves as well and that can be interesting to see um so yeah there's there's so much in these kind of shows that I think is can tap into where we are and the self-work that we're doing or have done um that can be quite helpful yeah it's nice to watch something and I like want people to have success right quite in like there's a lot of in culture at the moment a lot of um I don't know a lot of negativity and you know you know society likes to see people like torn down and like to see the chaos and the argument it's nice to watch a show and like genuinely kind of like root for people in it and say oh I hope you make it I hope you end up happy there's something like quite nice about supporting the positive parts of the journey rather than celebrating the the negative which is sometimes what reality tv pushes us towards I think yeah Yeah. I totally agree oh there you go mate no it's good I'm glad that because I've now got like really good um reasons from a therapist why it's a beneficial show to watch and i'm not just wasting my time watching, <laughs> watching approved. Tick. yeah that's it tick that tick that box yeah oh mate we're, we're coming up to the the hour mark tash i'm gonna gonna let you go but um yeah what's i don't know what do you do after you've written a book right are you just like are you chilling now are you um have you done the audio book have you recorded that the audio book yeah what was that like reading your your own work back to yourself it was so painful <laughs> it was I, I learned in the first day I was like I don't know if I can actually read can I read aloud because I was really struggling to do this and actually they booked in three days but they had to extend it to four days because I literally just it was so hard um yeah it was I don't know it's this thing of like hearing yourself back whilst reading whilst also reading your words and be like, oh my God, who actually wrote this? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a weird experience. And then in terms of like what to do now after the book, that's, it's interesting because it's, yeah, I'm in a kind of a bit of a weird place now because I think a lot of the time we focus on the thing that we're achieving. You know, my old therapist used to say to me, you're really great at like climbing the mountain and then looking for the next mountain rather than just staying on the mountain and being like, oh, I made it here. Wow, what a journey that was, you know? And I think, yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird lull where I'm like, okay, I wrote a book. I also planned a wedding this year. That two very huge things at the same time. It was really, you know, stressful. But now I'm in a quiet moment. I'm just like, I don't like this quiet. I'm not used to this quiet. What should I do next? How do I keep busy? Um, and it's actually trying to honor honor the stillness and allow myself to sit into it and to rest, to recover, to hopefully get more creative juices flowing at some point, and maybe another book will come. Um, so yeah, it's I'm fighting. I'm fighting, but I'm trying to be in the stillness. <laughs> yeah, because that's where often a lot of things bubble up from right like you when we because there's so much you know work television social media family all these stuff that's just driving us driving us driving us and yeah if you want to be creative and be a creative person you want to be able to express that and tap into that sometimes you just have to be bored right sometimes you just have to not have another mountain to climb and just let that 
bubble up. But we're not good at that, are we, as modern humans? As, like, I suppose capitalist society is kind of like pushes us away from it. But it, that, again, that's a hard skill, isn't it? You have to learn how to do that. Absolutely. I think we're not, we've not been we've not been brought up to be to be okay with boredom we've been brought up to be um productive and to be move on to the next thing I think just our society is just so much on productivity that boredom is like the the last thing that we're allowed to sit sit with um so yeah uh, maybe the next book will be about sitting with our boredom because that's currently what I'm trying to learn to do um so yeah <laughs> yeah oh mate that's great um but yeah thank you so much for your time today it's been a real real pleasure to chat and uh, yeah great to chat some maths as well but thank you for your time today tasha it's been lovely thank you for having me it's been a joy big up to that proper mental podcast. <laughs> the proper mental podcast. <laughs>